0: How many times do you have to clean your room for it to be perfect?
1: Uh, two hundred? Eighty-nine times? Um, three. Three? Yeah, because it's so young.
0: Do you think you're going to have a perfect Christmas this year?
1: Yeah.
0: Why? Since
1: there's presents there for you. Presents. Santa is not real. What? My mom and dad say.
0: I don't believe it. And do your mom and dad know everything? Yeah. Well, do they know when my birthday is? It's
1: awesome.
0: And I guess they don't know everything. What is the perfect ah. Christmas cookie shape?
1: Circle. A circle? A star.
0: Do you think that you're going to have a perfect Christmas this year?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's always perfect. Because there is going to be snowmen. I no. no
0: Is this a musical? <laughs> <laughs> What makes the perfect Christmas? God, God.
1: God. God. Why? God. Because. It's just because. Okay, she always copied me. She's copying me right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm copying you.
0: How big is the perfect Christmas tree? Uh, 89 ounces. It is 89 ounces big. 280 times big. And anytime, times... Uh, 3, eight, four, 2, three, three, 1, one. 14, 100,
1: Christmas trees is the biggest.
0: 13100 Christmas trees the biggest?
1: Yeah. I love it. All right, that's our children talking about uh, what's perfect. And, And honestly, we've been talking about this concept all month long in this series called Present Over perfect and recognizing that there's a lot of tension, there's a lot of pressure and stress associated with the holidays, and so how do we choose what is better? And, and, and the pressure is that we pull off things with perfection, but the better choice is that we choose to be present. And if you look at your notes, you grab those out of your handout, you'll see today's message is all about grabbing the perfect gift. That's what we want to unpack and tackle just a little bit today. I'll start with a story from Pastor Josh. He was telling me about the, the very first Christmas that he had when he was dating Neely. And uh, it, this many, many years ago. This young college student, he, he does not know how to give really good Christmas presents uh, to a girlfriend. And so he's at the mall feeling completely overwhelmed and stressed. Of course, there's all kinds of images being bombarded. He doesn't know, he's not a good shopper. Time is ticking down, he's got to give her this gift on the same day, and he's just panicking. So just in a, in a sweat, he picks a poster that he thinks is kind of cute, happens to be of a bunny, um, a, a female bunny doing chores like ironing. And, and, and so just in desperation, he buys this gift, he gives it to Neely later that day, and, and she does a good job of receiving it. But he can tell by her facial expression, she's seriously reevaluating their relationship. Now they have been married for 17 years. And so in hindsight, Josh thinks maybe this was the perfect Christmas present because it set the bar so low that he had nowhere to go but up. And so we just recognize that there's this tension, there's a pressure associated with giving the perfect gift. And and I know we're kind of late in this thing, but if you still haven't found the perfect Christmas present for that person who has everything, just a couple of ideas. You could knit your dad some shorts this Christmas. (laughs) Or you could buy a sweet new phone case for your loved one's iPhone. Or last but not least, you could buy some super fun hander pants to give. <laughs> Apparently, you wear these under your gloves. Okay. Now, the, the idea is that there's these, this pressure associated not only with the giving of our gifts, but with our traditions as well. Pastor Gary was telling me a story about he and his wife, Georgia, had come across a a notebook that their daughter, Giselle, had written in. And the notebook was titled, My Favorite Christmas Traditions. And so, you know, as parents delighting in their daughter, they, they went ahead and read, what are some of our daughter's favorite Christmas traditions? This is when she was a young girl and she wrote this. Every year on Christmas Eve, my family always has these traditions. We've had them for as long as I can remember. The first thing we do is gather around the tree while my mom or dad light the star on top of the tree. Gary said there was only one problem with this. They didn't do any of these traditions. <laughs> he said, we don't, we don't decorate the tree on Christmas Eve, and, and we don't light the star on the top of the tree. We've never had a star. We have an angel, and it doesn't light, right? So, so all of her favorite traditions, they weren't even traditions that they did. And, you know, you talk about a miss, right? Uh, but, but there's this idea of it's got to be perfect. And, and the pressure during the holiday means that some of us end up spending more time with the elf on the shelf than we do with our own children. We're we more stressed about prepping for parties and meals than we are actually enjoying the time with loved ones. We're more focused on capturing the moments of the holiday than we are on living the moments that God is bringing to us. And, and, and there is this Recognition that there's a motive underneath this whole concept of giving gifts. I want to ask you, and just let it linger for a second, what are we hoping for when we give a gift at Christmas? We're hoping that somehow in this exchange, there's a a memory created. We're hoping that in this exchange, somehow there's a communication of care that we communicate. If it's a good gift, we're hoping that it's a precious gift, it's a timely gift, it's an honoring kind of a gift. These are the things that we hope for when it comes to the giving of a gift. But the problem is that so many of us, we forget the gifts that we receive. If you, if you have kids and, and you go back and you say, hey, what gift did you get last Christmas? They opened 20 gifts or, or more, but, but the chances are good they can't remember even one Christmas present they got a year ago. This is just how we are. We don't, we don't remember the individual gift. We typically remember the experience or the feeling that we received during that season. In fact, my gut tells me that the only way you get a gift that you remember is if it's parked in the driveway with a bow on top. You'll remember that gift, right? You don't forget those. Now, there is an episode in the Bible where Jesus gives a gift during a celebration, and it is so precious and so timely and so honoring that we're still talking about it 2,000 years later. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 2, the Gospel of John. It's a story of Jesus' life. Chapter 2, it'll be on your notes. It's on the screen as well, and it says this, starting in verse 1. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Let's unpack a a bit of this for a moment. Now, I love Mary. I'm not a Catholic, but I think Protestants don't give her the love that she deserves. Because one of the things you see in this passage is that Mary absolutely believes in Jesus. In fact, I, I think that Mary believed in Jesus his whole life that she believed in him the moment the angel announced to her that she was going to give birth to him. She believed to him when he was in fifth grade doing social studies projects. She believed in him when he finished first in carpentry school, and she believes in him now. But like any good mom, she also believes that his time is come. Right? He's 30 years old. She's thinking the time for your ministry is now. And because she believes in him, right, she's got a plan for him. The wedding celebration is going on. And in America, wedding celebrations can last, you know, hours. But in ancient Israel, wedding celebrations last for days, These are like huge feasts and festivals and holidays all rolled into one. And, And this certainly would have been the predominant activity in this town in Cana in Galilee. And Mary was invited there, Jesus was invited there, his boys were invited there, everybody in the region was invited, they're all having a good time, conversation is flowing, the cover band is superb, right? They're having so much fun when suddenly the wine runs out. Now, friends, this is a problem. This is an affront to tradition. This is not how the Israelites do it. It's a serious faux pas, socially speaking. It would be like when you invite your friends over to your house to watch the Seahawks game and when they get there, you inform them, you know what, my television's broke, but I'll just act out the game for you. And they're like, we did not come here for this, right? It's that kind of a magnitude of a situation. And so the wine runs out and the bride is about to explode. And she goes to the groom, you had one job, And this is gonna get ugly fast. And so Mary, of course, she gets involved, right? She hears that the wine's run out. She knows what a big deal this is. So she sidles up to Jesus. They have no more wine, Jesus. Now, you and I might not know exactly what she meant in that moment, right? We might think that what she meant was, Jesus, why don't you and your boys pop down to Costco and buy a couple of cases of wine, come back, help them out. That's what we might have think she meant. But Jesus knew exactly what she meant. She meant it's time. It's time. You're here on earth for a purpose, and it is time. It's time to stop carpentering, and it's time to start Messiah-ing. It's time. And the reason why I know that she meant it's time is because Jesus answers her, it's not my time, Okay. This is what it says, dear woman, he says. And by the way, when he says dear woman, he's not pretending that he doesn't know her. What, this is actually a term of endearment, right? This is actually a really affectionate phrase that he says to her. And you can just picture he smiles at her. He loves her dearly. He says, my time has not yet come. And she smiles back at him. She loves him dearly as well. She says, oh, I think it has. So she goes to the servants and she says, do whatever he tells you to do. Now, I I want you to notice this because it's the only time in Scripture that this happens. Mary is the only person in the whole canon of Scripture who loves Jesus with her whole heart. She adores him. She believes in him with everything that she is and he tells her what to do, which is don't interfere in this moment, and then she does the exact opposite of what he tells her to do, and he's perfectly okay with it. It's the only time you're gonna see this, and I think it speaks to this really beautiful and unique relationship that Jesus had with his mom. And so, you know, this is just a caveat, it's just an aside, but I think one of the lessons for us is do what your mom tells you to do I think the other sort of caveat lesson is, unless you are the mother of Jesus, you better just do what he says, okay? She's the only one who seems to get away with this. All right, let's let's go in here, verse six. It says, standing nearby were six stone water jars. So these big jars used for ceremonial washing, Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instruction. So we do a little bit of math right here. And, and you just go, okay, six jars, each jar between 20 and 30 gallons. That's a total of a, 120 to 180 gallons of water. It's going to be right in the middle somewhere. A case of wine, 12 bottles of wine, contains just over two gallons. Which means that what is produced here is between 60 and 90 cases of wine, with each case having 12 bottles in it. Point, Jesus made a lot of wine. Okay. And if you're shipping this amount of wine, FedEx, it's two pallets of wine, and two pallets of wine looks like this. Right? That's a lot of wine, and that's how we know that this is a festival, this is a holiday. There's a ton of people here, and a ton of people, uh, they're going to consume a lot of wine, and they've already consumed a lot of wine because you know there was wine purchased at the front end, but it's now gone. Okay, So there's a lot of folks here. Verse 9, when the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew. Notice that, they're on the front lines here, they knew. He, came, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said, but you have kept the, oh, excuse me. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. Jesus has the waiters take the jars for washing, fill them with water, and then when they taste it, they discover that he's changed the water into wine. And not cheap wine, named after a bird or a handgun, but fine wine, the kind bearing a foreign name that most Americans can't pronounce because it's more complex than two buck chuck. The Bible says this is how the sovereign, eternal God of the universe first announces his glory in human flesh. It's by taking ordinary, everyday water and transforming it into something delicious and powerful and mysterious. C.S. Lewis talks a lot about this in his book called Miracles. And in this, he argues that what Jesus was doing in this episode is he was doing something that actually always happens by some form of natural transformation. He says anytime you have wine, anytime that's the end product, what you have always started with is water. And he describes the process in detail about how the grapevine absorbs water and channels that water through the vine into the fruit. And and so somehow it's transformed from water that's in the ground into this beautiful transformative, this this juice inside the grapefruit. And then he talks about how it's further transformed, right? That is released and fermented. And then finally you have this wine that's produced. But every time you end with wine, you've always started with water. And so he's saying what Jesus is displaying here is his supremacy, his mastery Over a process that happens naturally, Jesus is superior to it and can make it happen instantly. Much the same way that every storm that comes is bound to die out sooner or later. And yet Jesus displays his mastery by being able to calm the storm in an instant. Much in the same way that every single one of us, when we stand in glory face to face with the Lord... Ultimate healing is our destiny. We'll be healed of every single malady, every emotional brokenness, every disease, every calamity. It will be healed. That is our destiny. But Jesus displays his superiority by bringing healing into the here and now. This argumentation is that this this is not just a parlor trick, but Jesus is saying something about who he is and his authority over the natural processes that God has created. But what I want you to see in this moment is that what Jesus is giving is a precious, timely, honoring gift. It's precious. In the sense that it's the best wine anyone there had ever tasted. It's timely. In the sense that it's, in the moment they're running out, in the moment that this is going to become a disaster, that's when the wine is given and it's honoring. You see, the bridegroom gets so much honor here. Because the custom of the day is that when the guests have had their fill of wine and their tongues are not as discerning, that's when you bring out the cheap watered down stuff. But Jesus can't make cheap wine. He can only make $1,500 a bottle kind of wine. And so that's the wine that gets served and the bridegroom gets honored publicly. And what's so funny is the bridegroom's like, (laughs) I didn't do anything. He's just kinda, of what, I, I, we were out of wine. He's actually expecting that he's being called up to be disgraced and reprimanded. He's thinking that this thing is going down in flames and I have failed at the one job I absolutely had to get right. And he's expecting disgrace and embarrassment and what he receives is honor and praise. That's a snapshot of grace. That's what Jesus does again and again and again. Jesus gives good gifts. He knows how to give a gift right in the right moment. He knows how to give a gift that's precious. He knows how to give a gift that's honoring. And look what happens here. Verse 11. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So this event, kicks off his ministry, he reveals his glory, he amazed his disciples, solidified their belief in him, and he does all of this through the giving of a gift in the midst of a celebration. And so his example drives us to follow what he models for us. And I believe this episode gives us a couple of indications on gifts that we can give in this holiday season. So let me just offer three gifts that we can give this season. The first, you'll see on your notes, give the gift of invitation. And right on the front end, I want to say give the gift of invitation by inviting Jesus to the party. Because you invite Jesus to the party, ordinary moments can become extraordinary, mundane moments can become wonderful, regular moments can become powerful and lifelong memories when you invite Jesus to the party. And as we invite Jesus into our moments, our attitudes can change, our perspective can shift. How we view other people changes, how we worship is transformed. And this is a gift, it's a gift for ourselves, it's a gift for others, our loved ones. It all starts with inviting Jesus in. And that's what the scripture says in John 2.2. Jesus was invited to the celebration. So let me ask you, how are you planning to invite Jesus into the midst of your celebrations this season? It might seem like an odd question to ask, but but I want to ask it. And I want to challenge you to be creative in how you invite Jesus into the midst of this Christmas. He is the reason for this whole thing in the first place. I've talked to one family, and every year what they do is they bake a cake for Jesus. It's a happy birthday cake, and we're celebrating the birth of Jesus, so this is a birthday cake. And maybe you do that. You take the little Jesus from your nativity set, put it on the cake as a topper, right? That's a, a moment where you can absolutely celebrate the birth of Jesus. Many families I know read through the nativity, and they talk through the story of the nativity as found in the Scripture. And I wanted to tell you, we've put together two resources. They're children's books. Both of them are about Christmas. And at the end of both books, we've put a devotion together. It's a guide for parents to ask questions of their family and just talk about this amazing reality we celebrate as the birth of Jesus has come in. This is God in the flesh. It's, it's the incarnation and trying to help our families understand that and and so that's available in the hallway if that's something that's of interest to you. Maybe for you, it's, it's just that you take some time by yourself. Take a walk. And as you're experiencing the outdoors, as you're in nature, you're just processing with Jesus and thanking Jesus. And you're spending that moment adoring Him and loving Him and, and just being His. Right? But, but that's an invitation for you to be with Jesus. Uh, maybe what you do is you go around the table when you're having Christmas dinner and you thank him for specific things. I might have mentioned to to some of you, this is something that we have built into the Howerton tradition. Oftentimes what happens is people go around the table and they just say something that they're thankful for, which is a, a great tradition. But we've started, instead of just saying something that we're thankful for, we've started just telling Jesus what we're thankful for. And it's a it's a powerful moment of prayer as we invite Jesus to be the foundation of this season. And I, I bring this up, and I'm I'm a little bit aware that for some of you maybe this comes across as a little corny, it's a little cheesy to bake a cake and put Jesus atop or It just it feels a little fabricated, maybe. And then I realized that even as you're thinking that, the hypocrisy kicks in as we tell all of these, these rea- uh, uh, as we talk about, I'm trying to w- watch my words, as, we, uh, <laughs> a- a- as you know, we encourage letters to be written to the North Pole, as we encourage cookies t- to be left out for the big guy in the red suit, right? We, look, we are already cheesy and corny at Christmas, that's what I'm trying to say. There's no limit to that. Let's just make sure that we spend some time as a family inviting Jesus in. And then in the the next moment, you can see how this works. It's not just that we would invite Jesus into our moments, but but that we would invite others into those moments as well. Friends, this is just one of those beautiful realities that we have is that that there are others around us. There There are people in our workplaces, people in our neighborhoods, and they don't realize they don't celebrate Jesus they they, they're not inviting him in so we have an opportunity to invite them to join us and and to be a part of this thing okay so get creative at Christmas invite Jesus to the party and and this is my promise to you it's the same promise that we see in John chapter 2 when you invite Jesus to the party the mundane becomes magic it just happens The miraculous is now born because things have changed since Jesus is in our midst. So start by giving the gift of invitation. The next, I want to challenge you, give the gift of obedience. Give the gift of obedience. John uh, 2, 5, his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. You might just want to circle the word whatever. Do whatever he tells you you know, Mary tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. And she could tell us the same thing today. This is my son, Jesus. Do what he tells you to do. Even if you don't see how it's going to turn out, even if you don't know where it's all going to go, just do what he tells you to do. And the only promise I'm going to make, you'll be glad you did. It'll be good when you do whatever he tells you to do. And what he tells you not to do, don't do those things. Again, you'll be glad that you didn't, but, but just do what he tells you to do. And know this that she said that to the servants before she had any idea what he was gonna do. She didn't know how he's gonna solve the problem. She didn't, she she had no idea how Jesus was gonna engage this in this moment. She just knew he can handle it. So do what he tells you to do. And I think that's such great encouragement for us. I, I want you to see that she would not have said this if she had any doubt that he was in fact the son of God. She believed with her whole heart that Jesus was God in the flesh. And so she had no problem saying, you can trust him. Just do what he tells you to do. And so again, we started doing a little bit of math on our creative team. Apparently this was the math week. We started doing some math, not just multiplying out how many cases of wine Jesus made, but how much water the servants had to haul. It turns out that that gallons obviously uh, equate into pounds. We don't know where the well was that they had to go to draw this water, but you realize this was way before running water, so they had to go somewhere and draw buckets and buckets of water, put it in the jar, haul those jars back into the house. You're talking about moving between 1,000 and 1,500 pounds of water. So the servants got a nice CrossFit workout, in addition to being on the front line of a miracle. The, the servants, if you recall the story, they're the ones who knew exactly what happened. Because they knew the kind of water they put into the jar. They knew when they scooped the jar, it was no longer that water. And they knew when they finally tasted it, that it was superb wine. The servants were on the front end of that, and they knew that Jesus was the reason for that miracle. Nobody else had as clear of a view as they did, And, and it's because they did exactly what Jesus asked them to do. The scripture says this. Jesus says, all who love me will do what I say. My Father will love them, and we will come and make our home With each of them. Again, this is about inviting Jesus into your home, right? It's if we do what he tells us to do. So so maybe Jesus is calling you to begin the process of reconciling a relationship in your life. Somebody's wounded you, hurt you, betrayed you. Or maybe the opposite. Maybe you've hurt them, wounded them, betrayed them. But he's calling you now to begin that process of reconciliation, to take that first step. I actually know a few stories like that at Overlake right now. And I'm praying for reconciliation to happen. But it requires a first step. Maybe for you, Jesus is calling you to instead of judging or looking down upon someone, he's calling you to actually view them through the eyes of grace and start offering dignity to them. Maybe for you, he's he's asking you to listen more and to care more and to ask better questions in your relationships this year instead of always wanting to communicate more and to put yourself into the spotlight. Maybe what Jesus is asking you to do is to give something of value to somebody in need in your life. Or maybe right now he's bringing a face or a name into your mind. Somebody who really could use some encouragement this holiday season. And we know this to be true, that even though the holidays are a time of great joy for so many, they're also a time of great loneliness and pain. And So maybe there's somebody in your life that Jesus is asking you to reach out to this week. I say all this knowing that it's not always easy and it's not always fun, and oftentimes it just requires straight hard work to do what Jesus asks you to do. But if you do that, you get to be on the front line of a miracle. You see, the servants, they had to do a lot of hard work, and it involved sweat, it involved trust, and they finally brought that water in, served it up, it was wine. They got to see that thing up close and personal. And oftentimes, the miracle requires some hard work on the front end. Jesus is asking you to do some of the prep work now. He's the one that's going to do the heavy lifting. He's the one that's going to turn the water into wine, but we've got to be willing to do the work on the front end. So would you do that? This holiday season, would you give the gift of obedience? Do whatever he tells you to do. We give the gift of invitation. We give the gift of obedience. Lastly, we give the gift of presence, your presence. And you need to see that Jesus showed up. He was invited to the party. He showed up. And it's not just that he was there. He was aware. He knew what was going on in that setting. He he knew that there was a problem. He knew that he could give a gift that would take care of it. And, And I just want you to imagine this couple that gets married on this day. And imagine the story they can tell the whole rest of their lives. In fact, the whole rest of eternity. And I can just imagine meeting them someday in heaven and they're like, oh yeah, your wedding was good? I'm sure it was. Your reception was good? I bet it was. The Lord of the universe catered our wedding. (laughs) That's a story that's gonna be told again and again and again, it's just so beautiful and it's so beautiful because Jesus showed up. He was there, he was not only present, but he was all there and he knew how to engage that situation. And the challenge for you and the challenge for me is that where we are, we need to be all there. And so you invite Jesus into the moments of your life this season, you, you're present in those moments. Right? You're present with your family, you're present with your friends, with those in your workplace, you're present and, and you're able to care for them and to listen to them and to honor them. And, and I would argue that your presence, while at the same time inviting Jesus to be present, your presence is the most precious gift you can give this holiday season. It's the gift that cannot be substituted. There's no dollar amount of a gift you can give that will substitute your presence in that moment. And I do want to tell you that sometimes in our culture today, it's a lot easier to buy the expensive gift than it is to actually invest in the relationship. Sometimes we, we use gifts as sort of a buy-off instead of actually investing ourselves in the people that Jesus has brought to us. So when you look at Jesus, please understand, he was fully God and he was fully human. And so the picture that we see here is that he limited himself in his humanity and he could only be in one place at one time, just like you and me. And so when he was limited and could only be at one place at one time, you might expect that he was constantly looking over the shoulder of the person he was talking to. He was constantly looking for the next person to heal while he was in the process of healing this person. But in fact, just the opposite is true. Jesus models being fully present. He models looking people in the eye, asking them penetrating questions, listening not just to their words but to their hearts. He models what it looks like to value and to honor people by really engaging them in the moments that he has with them. So much so, I keep saying this, that that a moment with Jesus would create a memory for a lifetime. So he models that so that we would, in fact, follow what he models that we would, in fact, recognize that how he engages people in a moment, in a conversation, how he invests in them, and just the time that he has with them, that is how we're to love one another. Look what the scripture says in Romans chapter 12. It says, don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. And friends, that's what we want to have happen when we give gifts anyway, right? We want to take delight in honoring one another. We want that to be a part of how we engage in our relationships. So the challenge is that we are to be present in those moments in addition to the presence that we give. Ephesians 5.15 says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, could you do me this favor, could you underline that last phrase? Making the most of every opportunity. And the reason why I want you to underline that phrase is because I just want to make a point that Christmas is an incredible opportunity. There really are two times of year when, in general, people might be more open to coming to church than any other time. Christmas is one of those times. Easter is another. And and as we come up on Christmas, we're, we're excited about what we're offering at Overlake. We're excited about the experience that we're creating. But I want you to understand that why we're excited about this opportunity is because we love seeing people connected to the love of Jesus Christ. We love people understanding why this is a big deal, that Jesus comes, that the Lord of the universe humbles himself and comes as a babe bored in a stable, that this is the beginning of grace for us, that this is incredible freedom for us, that this is love manifest for us. And we want so many, and we want everyone to understand that God loves them and that God has a plan for them. And so this is an opportunity And I want to encourage you to make the most of this opportunity. That that we would, by the way, if you don't care about someone and you've never invested in a relationship with them, your invitation is not going to land very well. But if you have practiced what we've been talking about and you do invest in people and you are present in your conversations and they know that you honor them and value them as you interact with them, then your invitation is going to go a long way. And I just have this picture in my mind over Lake of of all of us that that we seek to model this way that Jesus loved, that we're present in our moments, in our conversations, that we honor in our relationships. We bring value and care. We give gifts that are timely and precious and honoring. And if we do that, I promise you that we will continue to build the movement that Jesus started 2,000 years ago, which is a movement of good news, of great joy which will be for all people. That's what we get to be a part of. But it starts with us giving the gift of invitation, giving the gift of obedience, and giving the gift of our presence. So friends, why don't we bow our heads and close our eyes, and let's ask Jesus to help us give these gifts this Christmas. And Lord, as we pray, we just want to recognize that that there are some things that we can do, some things that are well within our capabilities. In fact, things that you tell us to do, and model for us, that you ask us to do. But we just wanna say in the front end that anytime there is a miracle, any time there is a transformation in our own hearts, in our own homes, in the hearts of our loved ones, that you are always the one doing the miraculous work. You're the one who turns the water into wine. All we can do is fill the jars. So Jesus, would you show us how we fill the jars this Christmas? Show us what it looks like for us to just offer the gift of invitation and to give the gift of our obedience to you and that we would give the gift of presence, that we would just be fully invested in the moments and in the relationships that you bring to us. But God, we pray that you would, as we fill these jars, that you would be the one who turns them into beautiful, powerful, delicious wine. We pray that this would be a Christmas where memories are created, where lives are transformed, a Christmas where we just see that the ordinary has become extraordinary because we have invited you into the midst. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. (laughs)